0: Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave, cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's in the field, end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place." Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in and out in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, The field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You that it will not return void. We thank You that You speak to us through Your Word, and we pray that You would do that today, that by the power of Your Holy Spirit You would speak and instruct and teach, that You would build us up and You would nourish us with Your Word, that it would fill our bones and give us health deep into our bones, that we would be strong in the faith. And that, Lord, even today, that you might call the dead to life through the good news of the gospel. We pray that you would make your work effective through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Our family uh, moved overseas in, in 2014 to Cyprus, and when we got there, we had a place to live for one month. But then we had to find our own place to live, and so it was a pressing matter to find a permanent place. And so we began to search with the help of a realtor, and we would go. We had, you know, specifics. We had three uh, almost teenagers. Uh, We had, um, um, you know, a desire to have a place that we could show hospitality. We wanted to have people over. We wanted to be able to host uh, travelers and guests and so forth. And so we kind of had our... our dream plan of what we wanted to look for, but we also had that which squashes all dream plans, the budget. And so we began looking, and it was discouraging, you know, looking at places that were old and dingy or too small or had been smoked in or, you know, different scenarios. And in the course of one day, we were visiting about five different places. We came to a house that was clearly not in our budget. We didn't know how or why the realtor had taken us there. It wasn't fancy, But it was just cleaner, bigger, nicer, airier, Uh, just it didn't look like it fit. And so we went inside, and one of the first things is we met the owner. It was an upper house, so the owner lived in the lower house. One of the first things that we clarified was how much. And he told us not the price that was mistakenly not communicated to us by the realtor, but a price even higher than that price. And so Leslie and I looked at each other like, this is pointless. Let's just go ahead and go. But we went ahead, you know, to look around. And in the course of looking around, of course, what happened? We all fell in love with the place. We liked it. It had everything we needed. Uh, it was uh, it was just a, a perfect place for us to live. And so uh, Leslie kind of befriended the homeowner. And they talked about the garden. And so he had to go and show her the garden and so forth. But when we left, I was discouraged because it was, to me, felt like a waste of time. Little did I know that he had asked Leslie for our contact information, and several days later, we got a phone call from him. Well, Leslie got a phone call. Uh, she couldn't understand anything he said, and he could not make sense of what she was saying. And so in frustration, he said, you will come to our house Saturday at 2 o'clock for coffee. And that was the end of the conversation. And so what did we do on Saturday? At 2 o'clock, we went to his house for coffee. And we were greeted at the door by his adult son, and his wife was there as well. And we were kind of taken back, like, what's going on here? We weren't really sure uh, what was happening. And so we went in, and of course, in typical uh, Cypriot fashion, it's very hospitable. Cyprus is part of the European Union. But if you look at it on a map, it's surrounded by the Middle East and North Africa. And so culturally, it is very much an East meets West kind of culture. There is both Eastern and Western influence. And you see a lot of the Eastern influence in, it's in the hospitality. So coffee and cakes and goodies and all. And we sat there and we talked for an hour about everything but the house. And I got frustrated. And so with all of my cultural IQ, I finally just said, Okay, what do we need to talk about? And the son looked at me and said, well, uh, what what do you need to to live in the house? And I said, well, this is our budget. And he said, okay, if that's what you can afford, that's what you'll pay. (laughs) What just happened? Well, Bombos, the owner, immediately looked at his son and said something to him in Greek. We had no idea what he said until later. What he said to his son, we learned later, and it was kind of humorous. He looked at his son and said, okay, you'll pay the difference. (laughs) But what the Lord did for us that day was provide us a a perfect house we lived in for the next three years. We developed relationships with this family that were a true gift uh, to us and our family. Uh, We uh, saw just the Lord provide. But what we also learned was something culturally. And that is, uh, decisions were made in a larger family context, not not very American, not the way we were thinking. The son was brought in. He served as a liaison. We're th- we were thinking, what, what does he have in this discussion uh, beyond maybe better English? It wasn't about English at all. It was about the fact that this is how things were done. And it was very culturally different to what we had ever experienced. Well, when we come to Abraham in this text today, we see something of the same thing happening. It's a bizarre, in a sense, it's a bizarre account. Why didn't, uh, God in this chapter of Genesis just say, Sarah died, Abraham buried her, and he got a land, a piece of land to bury her in from a guy named Ephron, or from a guy. You know, why, why do we need all of these details? Well, as you might imagine, there is more to the story. And so we will see today in this passage that following uh, the death of Sarah, Abraham has to negotiate some cultural landscape that was maybe different than what he was used to. Of course, he probably had greater understanding uh, to find a possession, a piece of property in which he could bury his wife. We read from Psalm 116, 15 this morning. Uh, it's this verse from which we get the sermon titled, Precious. In the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a verse that's often quoted when believers pass away. It's a verse that gives us comfort to those of us who remain because we know that it is precious uh, in the sight of the Lord. It is a reminder of what is happening on the other side. What is our loss and our grief is heaven's reward. It's a trophy of grace in heaven that God is bringing home a one whom he has bought. It is precious to the heart of God to receive one of his own. And it's good for us to be reminded of that as we grieve the loss. Sarah's death was certainly a precious reception in heaven. She had lived her life faithfully. Not perfectly, we know that. But she had lived faithfully. She's included in that hall of faith in Hebrews 11. She had lived faithfully before her God, faithfully to her husband, and as a mother to Isaac. Throughout Scripture, we see the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you might wonder why that phrase is included that way, why those three. I mean, Abraham, you kind of understand as the father, uh, why he's included. But uh, why not others? Why, you know, why just he and, and his son and grandson? It's a list, though, that we could easily include any believer because God is the God of all of his children. And so God is the God of Abraham and Isaac, and he's the God of Sarah, too. He's the God of you and the God of me. And the point of all of this, Jesus helps us understand because he uses this phrase when he talks to the Sadducees about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus uses this to make a point very clear, that God is not the God of the dead. God is the God of the living. And so there is something about speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, about speaking of Sarah, that points us to the resurrection. It's what Job expressed when he said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another God is a God of the living. This is why Jesus can say the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Alan Ross makes this point. Jesus' point was that the promises to the fathers were not exhausted in their lifetime. Rather, the promises of God extend into the life to come, demanding a resurrection for their fulfillment. The book of Hebrews observes that they all died, not yet receiving the promises, yet they died in faith passage that he's referring to is Hebrews 11:13 where it says these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Here's a key point for us to remember as believers that Abraham and Sarah both understood we are exiles. We are foreigners. We are looking through a glass dimly. There is something that is awaiting us, the resurrection of the dead, that will deliver on all of the promises that have been made. Sarah got to see a son, but she didn't get to see the Messiah. She got a taste, a little taste. Abraham gets a piece of land in this passage, but he didn't get the whole land. He just gets a taste. And for even for us who are on the other side of the cross, we still only get a taste. Sarah's life and her death are a testimony of her faithful God who allowed her to conceive at almost 90 years old and give birth to the promised son. The promises given were no less true even though she only got a taste of them. And even so, we only have a taste. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Sarah now knows you and I still look through a glass dimly. We still peer through a veil. While we recognize Sarah's death was in faith, we have to also recognize that it was still a grief and a loss for Abraham and for Isaac and for the extended family. We read in verse 2, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham feels the loss of his wife. Grief is real. It's, uh, Christians are not immune to grief. Don't misunderstand how faith informs our grief. We can grieve. We do grieve. We should grieve. Loss is something that should bring grief to us but we're cautioned as to how we are to grieve. And 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we're told not to grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because our faith informs our grief so that we have hope. We still hurt. Grief can be like a roller coaster. It can be like waves coming on shore. It can be like somebody jumping around the corner to scare you. You think you're over it and it's gone, and it comes back and surprises you with an even greater force. Grieve those whom you have lost. Grieve the things that you have lost, but grieve with the hope of the resurrection that you haven't lost at it all. It's not the end of everything. There is more to come. There is the resurrection. Jesus is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, Abraham's grief may seem truncated. It's kind of abrupt the way it's written here because in verse 3 it says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, Uh, just because the narrator doesn't go into a long discourse of what his grief looked like doesn't mean that Abraham didn't grieve interesting that as much of the text is given to the transaction and why it's not more, uh, more, or why not more is given to the loss that Abraham feels. But it's clear that Sarah's death is the central focus, both of the passage that's before us, as well as all of Abraham's motivation. In these Uh, 20 verses, there are nine instances of the word or phrases of the word death or burying. That's clearly what's going on here, what's driving Abraham to what he is doing. And what's the narrator's point in emphasizing all of this about death and burial? Well, it's the same theme that we have seen throughout Genesis, that death and its cause, sin, will not stop the promises of God. Death and its cause, sin, sin will not stop the promises of God. It's what we have seen. Nothing stands in the way of the covenant promises that God has made. And so in and through the death of Sarah, we see a stake planted in the ground whereby the inheritance that had been promised to Abraham becomes a possession that he comes to own part of the land. In verses 4 to 16, we get the actual account of the negotiation And again, it can strike us as rather strange. Why is all of this included? Why didn't it just say, Abraham bought the land? I mean, how many other kind of boring day-to-day life activities of Abraham that happened in his life are not recorded in Scripture? Why is this one here? Well, it's that last question that drives us to the realization that this is here for our benefit, and so it is worth considering. Over and over, God has said to Abraham, The land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And it is because of Abraham's faith, and particularly in this promise, that he does not do what would be culturally normal for someone in this situation. What would have been culturally normal for Abraham would have been to take Sarah back to Ur. You go back to the land of your fathers to bury your dead. You go back to your family gravesite, so to speak, and bury your dead. That's just what you do. And yet, that's not what Abraham does here, because he has said goodbye to Ur. God has called him to leave his land, and so it is an act and a a demonstration of his faith by staying here and saying, I'm going to bury Sarah here. It establishes his faith in a demonstrable way. Meredith Klein writes, It was a confession of faith, like the erection of altars in the Lord's name that Abraham stayed to bury Sarah in Canaan. In modern times we could say he was putting down roots. He was establishing that this is my home. Purchasing land has a way of doing that. When we moved here we rented a house for a year and a half and people would ask us as time went on, have you found a home? And obviously that was the motivation was you know, encouraging, right? Have you found a place to live? Have you found a place to live? But there's an underlying question to that, particularly for pastors. Are you going to stay? Are you going to put down roots? Are you going to leave us? Um, I don't know if you're glad about that or not, but we bought a house. <laughs> and and, and the, what buying a house communicates is we're putting down roots. We have intention to stay. And that is what Abraham does here in buying this land. We see the exchange begin in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Sounds a little harsh, bury my dead out of my sight, but there's a pressing need here. Something that may be a little gross to consider, but it's hot in Palestine and there are no, no modern embalming techniques and burying the dead at this time and stage in history was of a pressing importance. It needed to get done. And so Abraham, recognizing that this was his new home that God had called him to, needed a place to bury his wife quickly. But this was magnified even more so by the fact that he was a foreigner, a sojourner. He was no landowner and therefore did not have rights. He didn't have the right to just go out like you and I do in the country that we live in and see a for sale sign and say, I want to buy that and give money for it. There was, uh, uh, we see this. We see it in the description that culturally certain things had to happen. You see the language that he comes before all of the Hittites, that there's appeals are made. Talks about being in the, at the gate of the city. Things had to be done a certain way and a certain manner for him to have this land. Abraham knew his position. He knew, I'm a foreigner. I don't really have the ability to just walk in here and throw money down. That I have to do things in a certain way. The word that's translated here for property that he is seeking is, in Hebrew, the word for possession. And it's used three times in this passage, but we've seen it used before in Genesis. For example, in Genesis 17, God uses the same word in Hebrew when he tells Abraham that he'll give him the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. This is what Abraham is looking for. Yes, he needs a place to bury Sarah, but he's looking for something far beyond real estate. And this is important for us to remember that we don't get caught up in the real estate. That there is always something going on that's bigger. You have to get your wide-angle lens on here to see all that is happening, all that is unfolding. That God had promised him an inheritance that, yes, was for this land, and He was giving him this land. It was the first stake to go in the ground, so to speak. But there was a land that's coming whose the eyes that Abraham has had his eyes set on that was going to last forever. And it was going to be far greater than the piece of dirt that he was standing on in Palestine so many years ago. There was a greater land. And so Abraham now then recognizes what the system is and he works through that human legal system of his day to take possession of the inheritance. We see the language, give me, and you might think that Abraham was wanting a freebie, but that's clearly not the case as the story unfolds. Abraham was willing, not just willing, but insisting, on paying for the land. But this is some of that cultural nuance that we're really not familiar with. This is not the way we would do business. We wouldn't sit down at the table and use this language, but it's giving us some insight into the cultural language of this place and this day. And so we see that the only component of this entire exchange that is a gift is that they give him the opportunity to buy the land at all. He's still going to pay for it. The Hittites respond to his request with an offer saying, hey, choices of tombs, take it, you can bury your dead here. They call him a prince of God among us. The narrator doesn't give us insight into what we mean. Was this sarcasm? Was this tongue-in-cheek? Or was this genuine? Well, there's no indication that it was anything other than genuine, although it was still coming from pagans. They understood, kind of like Abimelech, that God was on Abraham's side. And so whether this was genuine or not, there's at least a position of protection that God has put Abraham in even before a pagan people. And then before the entire gathering, Abraham comes back and counters. He's got a specific cave in mind. It's a cave in Mechpelah, which belongs to Ephron. And so in a culturally appropriate way, Abraham makes the appeal before everyone rather than directing it to Ephron. Now, we would see this as political, right? This would be kind of backhanded. If somebody stood up and made a request of me this morning in front of everybody that made me feel kind of awkward or put me on, you know, I would I would have gone to him. Why didn't you just come to me and tell me? That's That's our kind of American way of doing things. We wouldn't do things this way. But this is the way that this culture does this. And so in verse 9, he makes the offer, for the full price, let him give it, give it to me in the presence in your presence as property for a burying place. And so Ephron now then takes the reins and responds directly to him, I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. And it sounds to us like, great, take it. <laughs> it sounds like a gift, right? Don't, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Take it, it's free. Jump on it. But Abraham has more cultural awareness than we do, and he understands this is all part of the negotiating process. This is What Ephron is doing here was expected. And so Abraham now humbly bows down before the people and insists on making a full payment for the cave. And then in verse 15, Ephron responds, and he again culturally presents the asking price to... Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. You know, somebody comes up, you going to eat that other half of the sandwich? Oh, that filet mignon that I cooked last night and spent so much time preparing that I've been craving all day. Sure, go ahead and have it. Right? I mean, you can see what Ephron is doing here. He's throwing it out. 400 shekels, that's what I'm expecting. Even though he says, what's it between you and me? Just take it. In the south, we have phrases to describe what Abraham does here. Abraham picks up what Ephron is putting down, right? Abraham smells what Ephron is cooking. He is culturally tuned in and understands what he must do. And so in verse 16, we see him measure out 400 shekels of silver and pay him for that. Ephron is a shrewd businessman. He saw the opportunity. It was only asking for a cave. And he sees it as an opportunity that, hey, I'm gonna get rid of this whole field with it, and I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna get it at a good price. He was gonna make a profit. Most scholars agree, even though we don't know all the values of both the, the shekel at this point in history, as well as the way the golden land, all that kind of stuff, most scholars still look at this, comparing it to other transactions that are recorded, and say, Abraham paid a lot more for the land than it was worth. Ephron got a good deal. He was a shrewd businessman. But Abraham knew what he was getting into. He understood his position as a foreigner. And so he settled his account in full. Partly because Sarah was worth it and partly because he trusted God to deliver on the promises even more so. He now owns land. And that cave would not only serve as a burial site for Sarah, Abraham will also be buried in this same cave. And we'll later see Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah all buried here as well. The down payment on the land has been secured. Abraham now has a possession in the promised land. Then these final verses, verses 17 to 20, are almost a recanting of it, but in a more legal manner. It reads almost like a deed. Verse 17 gives the specifics of the plot. It even describes the trees which were considered of great value. And it says it was all made over to Abraham before all who went in at the gate of his city. That was where the witnesses were that could attest to the fact that a more than fair price had been paid and the land was now legally Abraham's and his descendants. There was no arguing with it. It was set in place legally much more than that well that Abimelech had acknowledged was Abraham's Abraham now owns legally something that has in essence a deed a piece of land in a legally recognized manner the promise that God gave him was coming true it wasn't going to come true completely in his lifetime we've already talked about that that they looked at this uh, from you know toward the future they only got a foretaste of it But one day Joshua would come along and would initiate the conquering of the land and Israel would eventually possess all of this land. And yet they would come to love the land more than the one who gave it to them and they would lose it all again. But the promise was an eternal promise. It was for a land that was far greater than this piece of real estate that they stood on. The writer of Hebrews again helps us. Going back to verse 13 in chapter 11 of Hebrews, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The longing that is in all of our hearts to be at home, to experience shalom in a way that we've never known in this lifetime, a place that is heavenly. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more viruses, no more broken relationships, no more sin, no more injustice, no more crime. The list goes on and on. The longing of heaven is in all of our hearts. It is a call to faith for those who have yet to believe. That desire to be at home. And it's offered to us in Christ who who promises, delivers on all of these promises. Christ came and fulfilled all of these promises. He dealt with sin. The, the, the What sets up the whole problem in the first place, why death even comes into the equation, Jesus deals with it on the cross. And Christ came not only to, to pay for the wrong things we have done, but to secure that heavenly home for us. A better country, a heavenly one, offered to us and for us in Christ. Come to Him and trust Him completely. For the forgiveness of your sins, yes, but also to gain a citizenship in this everlasting land of peace. Sarah's death is a reminder to all of us the hope that is ours. True and sure that we will one day be raised from the dead to life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do long for the day to be at home. But Lord, while we are here and we walk through this life, would You give us the eyes of faith to see the promises for what they are, to know that in Christ and in Christ alone our hope is found. Would You deepen that trust so that as we come up against uh, the trials, the unexpected things, when life doesn't go as we planned, when we don't uh, have the answers for what's in front of us. Lord, also when we face change, when we face loss, when we, when we lose a loved one, when we grieve, Lord, would you deepen our faith so that we'll trust you through these things to know that you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the living. And that a resurrection is coming. Would you strengthen us to know and to trust. And to rest in that hope. That you keep all of your promises. And a city awaits us. Where our citizenship is secure. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.